Well, friends, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to Acts chapter five is where we're gonna be this morning. Acts chapter five, beginning in verse 17. Acts chapter five, beginning in verse 17. And we will go through verse 42 this morning. Acts chapter five, verses 17 through 42. God exalted Jesus Christ. The more I read my Bible and the more I study in particular the book of Acts, the more I become convinced that this is one of those central, fundamental, foundational truths that was uh, critical for the early church. God exalted Jesus Christ. He did not dismiss him. He did not ignore him. He was not neutral towards him. He did not deny him. God exalted Jesus Christ. The more I read my Bible, the more I am convinced that this is was a critical issue for the early church, and it is and will be a critical issue for us as well. God exalted Jesus Christ. Such was the resolve of Peter and the early church that when confronted with a world that denied and doubted and dismissed this truth, these were Peter's words. We're going to put them up on the screen for you so you can see them as I read them. Peter said this, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter and the rest of the early church said, God exalted Jesus Christ. So no matter what the rest of the world does with him, we will obey him. God exalted Jesus Christ, so I will not deny him, I will not disobey him, I will not reject him, I will obey him. uh, Peter said, because God exalted Jesus, so must we. This morning, I simply wanna ask you, do you believe this? Would you have sat and said in agreement with Peter when he said these words? Do you believe that this is true? Zach did a great job two weeks ago confronting us with the resurrection and its implications on our lives. And he basically looked at us and said, if you believe the resurrection is true, then it changes everything. It changes how you interact in political conversations and conversations about justice and conversations about sexuality and ethics. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, if the grave couldn't hold him and God exalted him and seated him at his right hand, at his right hand this changes everything. The apostles held these convictions, even to the point of persecution. The question is, will you? The question is, will you? I wanna talk to you this morning about obeying God rather than men. We've been talking about being a church worth joining, and I I hope that you do join. We've got membership bioforms in the back if you're interested in that. I hope that you do join. But part, part of being a church worth joining is being a church that is distinct from the world, being distinct from those who do not believe what we believe to be true. We must be a church that is willing to stand up for Christ when the world calls us to shut up about Christ. The world has told the church for centuries to sit down and be quiet. 
Common mantras have essentially dismissed the church throughout the ages. Mantras like, you're going to be found on the wrong side of history. Perhaps you've heard that one. Or the church needs to get with the times. Perhaps you've heard that one as well. World history is filled with eras and kingdoms in which those kingdoms said to the church, you better get with the times, church. You better catch up. You're gonna be found to be on the wrong side of the history, church. And do you know what happened to those kingdoms? They fell and they were replaced by the next kingdom, which looked at the church and said, hmm, you better get with the times, church. You're gonna be found to be on the wrong side of history, church, with your outdated biblical beliefs. You, you still believe that to be true? You better get with the time. And you know what happened to that kingdom? It, it fell and it gave rise to the next kingdom, which stood up and mustered up all its strength and puffed out its chest and said, oh, church, those other kingdoms didn't know what they're doing, but, but we do. You, church, better get with the times. You better not be found to be on the wrong side of the history in that kingdom fell. You see the pattern. And through every era and every kingdom, Jesus has said to those with the ear of faith, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not fail against it. And he has not built his church on weak men and women. Well, he has but weak men and women who have found great resolve in Christ. Men and women who have said with Peter, we must obey God rather than men. Persecution has always been a part of the church's experience in the world, and the experience of the people of God in the world. Consider just a couple of passages of scripture. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What were the nations saying? They were saying, oh, we don't want those antiquated beliefs. We can do better, thrive better, flourish better without God. Church, you better get with the times. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, God exalted Jesus Christ. Or Daniel chapter three, perhaps you're familiar with the story. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. It was huge. And he called all of the leaders of the world together to indoctrinate them. I mean, teach them and say, when I blow the trumpet, every knee in in this kingdom will bow and worship the golden statue in my image. And if anyone doesn't, we're gonna throw them in a fiery furnace. In other words, the church better get with the times. What happened? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said no. They would not bow. King Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that they be brought together. And so they bring him together and he has all of the, the, the council city leaders around and he brings them in and says, okay, are you ready to bow now? Are you ready to bow now? All of these leaders, look how authoritative they are. I mean, anybody who wants anything done is in this room. They've all bowed to the statue. You're not gonna bow to the statue? What, what's, gonna, what's gonna happen? He says, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then he asked them this question, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? 
You can almost hear Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we must obey God rather than men. Toward the end of Peter's life, Peter would go on to write these words. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In Acts 5, we see a moment of fiery trial. There are obvious parallels between the persecution we saw in Acts chapter 4 and the persecution we're going to see in Acts chapter 5. But what we found, excuse me, let me do that for you, in Acts chapter 4 and then later in Acts chapter 5. I realize you're seeing it backwards from me, all right? Um, But what we find is that the devil has turned the knob. He's increased the persecution. So you can tell in Acts chapter five that the flames have gotten a bit higher than they were in Acts chapter four. The heat has raised a few degrees. There is a increase in the tension of the narrative. But one commentator points out the repetitive patterns in these chapters serve to emphasize and enrich a vision of God as one who works by irony, subverting and overruling the human powers who appear to be in control yet undermined by men and women who said we must obey God rather than men. In our text this morning, there are three narrative breaks. Luke frames this conversation around three moments in which three different groups stand up. First, the high priest and the whole Sanhedrin stands up in outright opposition to Christ. Then the rabbi Gamaliel stands up in apparent neutrality towards Christ. And then finally, the apostles stand up, rejoicing in the midst of persecution to teach and preach that Jesus is the Christ. And the question for you is which group are you standing up with? Which group are you standing up with? And will you obey God? So we're gonna see three points here in our text this morning. The first is this, resolve to obey God when faced with outright opposition. Resolve to obey God when faced with outright opposition. And for those who pay attention to such things, just so you know, the first point is by far the longest. Okay, so if we get to the end of the first point and you're looking at your watch, don't worry, all right? Resolved to obey God when faced with outright opposition. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Now what's happened? Peter and the apostles had been told by those in authority, the uh, high priest and those who were with him, not to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. But they said, we can't do that. So they kept preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. And so filled with jealousy, they arrested them. This is outright opposition. You see the characters at play, the high priest and the Sadducees. This is the council or the Sanhedrin. They were basically the Senate and the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation. They had religious and political authority and they were threatened by the teaching that Jesus was the Christ. You must understand, Christian, that the gospel is inherently political. It is inherently political. You belong to a king. 
and a kingdom and every other authority in your life must be confronted with the reality that they are not ultimate. Only Christ has ultimate authority in the believer's life. So it wrestles with, it confronts every other authority. And many of the other authorities in your life are going to rise up in outright opposition to the authority of Christ. They were filled with jealousy. So this isn't academic. This isn't a theological debate. They didn't have a quarrel about how they interpreted this verse. This isn't a policy disagreement. This is an issue of jealousy. John Calvin points out that here we see the fury of the wicked raging against the church. You can hear again, Psalm 2, when the nations raged. Christian, do you think that the devil is going to be tempered in his rage? Do you think that he's going to be calm and collected about it? No, he's the devil. Revelation chapter 12, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so the devil does not think of this as a board game between nice friends, right? The devil is after you. He hates you. He is filled with jealousy and rage and he is not calm, cool, or collected in his opposition to you or to Christ. So they arrested, they arrested the apostles and they put them in public prison. Now the emphasis here is not that they were put in a public prison as opposed to a private prison. Rather, the emphasis is on the fact that they were put in prison publicly. The high priest and his associates acted in a way that publicly demonstrated their authority over the apostles. This is public theater. It is a display of authority. The high priests and others said, oh, you think Jesus has ultimate authority? We will show you. Their stability was threatened, so they made a public spectacle of these followers of Jesus. Luke goes on, verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. You can see the irony here. Oh, we're gonna shut you up. We're gonna put you in prison. God says, no, 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 you're not. Right? He laughs. He says, I'm going to unlock the prison. I'm going to unlock it. Watch. During the, not, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Which, 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 okay, time out. It's not my notes. But that means that every time, every time the church is opposed, every time the devil comes up with a way to oppose the church, we can, in a sense, smile knowing that behind the scenes, there is a greater authority at work. Oh, you're gonna put me in prison? Okay, all right. What we find towards the end of the Apostle Paul's life is that he was put in prison and he said, look, they don't realize this, but the way they're imprisoning me, a new guard is chained to me every eight hours and they just rotate them. They have no idea that these guards are being converted to Christ and going back into the palace and changing the world for the gospel. Paul says, you wanna lock me up? Okay, go ahead. 
Here's, here's, my, here's my wrist. So during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Sounds backwards to me, but he's an angel, I'm not. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. This is a miraculous release. Although there are three such accounts of miraculous deliverance in Acts, Luke is clear that others were not delivered. Some had to endure death, like Stephen in Acts 7 and James in Acts 12. Some suffered an extensive period of imprisonment, Paul in Acts 21. Miraculous deliverance is not the normal expectation of Luke or the characters in his narrative. So the point is not you will, you will be delivered anytime you suffer. The point is for you to resolve that you, will, that, that you will honor Christ in your body, as Paul said, whether by life, or by death. Paul said, whether I live or whether I die, I will make much of Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Paul said, I'm not afraid of suffering. When I suffer, that's not the end of the gospel's advancement in my life or through my life. It may be the very means of the gospel's advancement in my life and through my life. So when you suffer, don't think that God is done with you. Your suffering may indeed be the platform on which he performs his greatest miracle. We are to obey him in life and in death. Why? Because he is our only hope in life and in death. And then the angel gives them a clear command. They are recommissioned to be steadfast in proclaiming the hope of Christ. Again, we might think this doesn't make sense. You just let me out of prison. I was thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. Now you're telling me to get out of prison and to keep preaching the gospel. This doesn't add up. Calvin explains, the Lord delivers his children, not to the end that they may cease off off from the course which they have begun, but rather that they may be the more zealous afterward. The apostles might have objected. It's better for us to keep silent for a time. We can't speak one word without danger. We've been thrown in prison for only one sermon. How much more shall the fury of our enemies be inflamed afterwards if they see us make no end of speaking about Jesus? But because they knew that they were to live and to die to the Lord, they do not refuse to do that which the Lord commanded. So we must always mark what God commands. Calvin goes on, he says, there will be many things that meet you throughout life which may discourage you unless being content with the commandment of God alone, you do your duty and commit your success to him. God has commanded you. He's made it clear. You cannot disobey God to obey men. You must obey God. He has spoken with authority in your life. He's given you a clear and sufficient word in the Bible. And anything that caused you to disobey the Bible is a fork in the road at which you must make a decision. The angel said, I want you to go speak all the words of this life. Again, this is meant to fuel their courage that they might go into combat for the gospel. They are, they understand, ministers of eternal salvation. Do you understand that you have the gospel, Christian? You have the only news that can set people free, just like Adam pointed out a minute ago. This is it. If they deny Christ, they will spend eternity in hell. There's no third option. There's no other way. 
They are either in Christ, set free from their sin, or they are in the first Adam, still captive to their sin, and they will die in one or the other. And you have the keys. You've got the gospel. And so if you clam up, if you say, no, 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 never mind, I won't say anything, then you are eventually robbing them of their only hope. But the apostles were given a clear command to preach the words of this life. They were to take their stand at the very center of Israel's national and religious life, the temple courts, indicating their fulfillment of the hope in the Messiah Jesus. And they were to do this in the face of mounting opposition. They went to the temple at daybreak. Let us not cower in the corners. Luke goes on, now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have the apostles brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Sounds a lot like Easter morning, doesn't it? Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. You, you don't say. They were confused. They didn't know how this happened. You can imagine that they were looking at each other all of a sudden saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Did you let them out? Did you let them out? The only logical explanation they could come up with was that there was a traitor in their midst. Certainly, they weren't thinking of a miracle. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So they charged them with disobedience to the first command. We told you not to teach and preach in the name. You taught and preached in the name to the point of filling, the, uh, filling Jerusalem with their teaching. Then they charged them with intending to bring this man's blood upon them. They must have forgotten what they cried to Pilate concerning Christ. Matthew chapter 27. When Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people, which would have included the people here in Acts chapter 5, all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. They had just said, yeah, put his blood on us. We're guilty, that's fine. And now they're saying, you intend to put this man's blood on us. You can see the illogic here, the lack of logic. The truthfulness of the apostolic claims about Jesus was not even considered at this point. Again, this wasn't a theological debate. This had nothing to do with the truthfulness of the apostles' teaching. They were filled with jealousy. The Sadducees were more concerned about maintaining their reputation and leadership among the people. But Peter answered, verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those whom obey, who obey him. 
One commentator offers this. He says, Christians should generally submit themselves to governing authorities, showing proper respect and cooperation, recognizing that political leaders and institutions have been established by God for the good order of society. At the same time, they cannot deny their fundamental calling as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession to declare the praises of the one who called them out of darkness into his wonderful light, as Peter says. When that opportunity is denied or thwarted by governments, a terrible, a terrible clash of loyalties arises. Imprisonment and death are sometimes the lot of those who, in imitation of the apostles, cannot keep silent about God and the gospel. We must obey God rather than men. For Peter, this was an issue of allegiance and there was no question as to where his ultimate allegiance fell. We must obey God rather than men. Now, it is not a direct parallel, but I do think it's a comparison worth making. Christians in Greece recently denied government demands not to meet for Orthodox Easter. And the church leaders got together and they wrote a letter to the government that said, we have tried to obey your commands to the best of our ability, but we have to draw a line in the sand and we will gather to worship the risen Christ. They drew their line and they said, here we are. James Coates is a pastor who recently spent over 35, I believe it was about 39 days in prison for holding church services. The government of the country in which he pastors recently called a, a bunch of their um, uh, agencies together and parked cars in the church parking lot so as to prevent the church from gathering on a Sunday morning, but they didn't stop there. They also set up fencing around the parking lot so that you couldn't walk into the parking lot even if you wanted to. They didn't stop there. They drew, uh, put up another second layer of fencing around the church building. And in that, with that second layer of fencing, they covered it with black tarp so that you couldn't even see what they were doing inside. This was in Canada. This is in a third world country. It's not a country that is in outright perhaps obvious opposition to Christianity is not far from us. Now again, it's not an obvious parallel, but all smoke of honor vanishes when a person in authority uses that authority to undermine God's greater authority and you will experience a fork in the road. Christian, you will experience a fork in the road. And so what did that church in Canada do, by the way? They met underground. They met together, just in a place where the authorities wouldn't find them. Again, this isn't far from us. The foundation of Peter's allegiance was what God had done with Christ. This isn't just a rebellion. This is submission to what God has done with Christ. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. God raised him whom you laid to death. God exalted him. The Holy Spirit bears witness to him. We must not deny him. We must not disobey Christ. 
as a pastor, I am often asked to do weddings. And the first conversation I will have with the prospective couple, depending on how well I know them, is I'll say, I need to go ahead and lay my cards on the table. I do not know how. Well, maybe that's not the right way. I will not speak about marriage without speaking about Christ. I just won't do it. So I'll say to the couple, listen, this is your wedding. If you want a wedding that does not mention Jesus, you're welcome to have that. I won't do it. I cannot set Jesus to the side when I talk about your marriage. When I talk about your wedding, I cannot set Jesus to the side. I just won't do it. In the same way, perhaps you've found this to be the challenge in conversations recently about justice, which is a word that many people are using. But my fear for many Christians is that we are setting Jesus to the side in our conversations about justice. You say, but Jeff, they, in conversations about justice, that's hard. They, they don't believe what we believe. That's correct. And we don't believe what they believe. So we will inevitably have differing and even conflicting at times understandings of justice and righteousness and human flourishings. But we must not set Christ to the side as we have these conversations. It would be unloving of us to do so. There are points of justice in which Christians and non-Christians can and should agree. But rest assured, if you belong to Christ and if you resolve to obey him, you will be confronted with a fork in the road. It might be about justice. It might be about marriage. It might be about education. It might be about government. It might be about human flourishing. It might be about a thousand things. But you will experience a fork in the road. And phrases like the wrong side of history and words like justice will be used sometimes to say to you, if you want to be right with the world, you must deny Christ. So you've got to ask, who are you going to stand up with? Will you obey God rather than men? We cannot pray, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done, and expect Christless philosophies and ideologies to get us there. There is a God who created the heavens and the earth and has all rights to rule and reign over us. We cannot deny him. We live in a world broken by sin, both Adam's sin and our sin. And Jesus Christ saves sinners. There is no salvation apart from him. And God will one day bring about full restoration in a new heavens and a new earth. This will include an everlasting hell into which he will cast his enemies and all those who refuse Christ and an everlasting heaven into which he will welcome his children. Will you obey God rather than men? Resolve to obey God when forced with outright opposition. Secondly, I told you, point one was the longest, so take it easy. Resolve to obey God when others are apparently neutral. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. 
For before these days, Theodos rose up. I think he was in Lord of the Rings as well. Different Theodos, just to clarify. He rose up claiming to be someone. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, different Judas, and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were uh, scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or uh, this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now, it sounds like Gamaliel is neutral. It sounds like he's saying, whoa, 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 we're Switzerland, right? We're not going to pick sides. We're going to remain neutral. Whoa, 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 whoa. But his neutrality or the appearance of his neutrality is undone both by what he says and what happens after he speaks. Keep away from these men is not a neutral response to a Jesus who says, come to me. You either come to him or you don't. Keep away from these men was not, well, let's just keep our hands clean. This was a, we don't believe it to be true. Gamaliel does not call for an examination of the truthfulness of the apostolic claims. In the final analysis, his advice is fatalistic and flawed. And not only is his response, but what happens after he speaks shows that he really wasn't neutral. They beat him. It says, so they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Gamaliel was one of the most respected voices in this group. So you know that when they beat him, they would not have done it unless he had to some degree approved. More than that, the apostle Paul himself was a student of Gamaliel. In fact, Paul might have even been there in Acts chapter five when the apostles were beaten. Imagine it, Paul being a part of the beating of the apostles in Acts five. Then he participated in the killing of Stephen in Acts chapter eight, verse one. He breathed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and had political authority to bind Christians and bring them to trial, Acts chapter nine. Listen to Paul's own words from Acts 22. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Paul was raised up, educated, taught by this Gamaliel. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness from them. I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Friends, the greatest opponents to God's work today may yet be the recipients of God's salvation tomorrow. Perhaps the seed of faith was planted in Paul as he watched the apostles hold their convictions. Resolve to obey God. In the light of opposition, in the light of neutrality, and then finally with others who make Christ known. Then they... The apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 
And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. John Calvin sums this passage up. Joy got the upper hand. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease. Is that you? not ceasing to teach and preach that Jesus is the Christ. A parked car does not need to worry about obstacles in the road. Too many of us are parked cars. Let us get in motion. They were teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The point here is not merely to stand up and be counted or to protest against governmental overreach. The point is to teach and preach that the Christ is Jesus. They filled Jerusalem with their teaching. I want us to fill the peninsula with the gospel. Every neighbor, every street, every community, every zip code. Friends, you are not obeying God if you are not teaching that the Christ is Jesus. The goal is not simply to not obey men. The goal is to obey God. Calvin again, therefore, woe be to our daintiness, who having suffered a little persecution, do by and by resign up the light to another as if we were now old, worn soldiers. God intends to use you to reach others, but you must be willing to suffer to do it. We must obey God rather than men. Not for Sunday morning Christians, but for men and women who have been born again and who wholly belong to Christ. I want you to go ahead and grab the communion elements that are in the seats in front of you. This is a meal which the Bible makes clear is not for non-Christians. It is only for those who are trusting in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know I'm glad you're here. I would love to sit down and hear your story and the questions you have about Jesus. But this meal is not for you. You do not belong to Christ and you ought not pretend that you do. My prayer is that you would, that you would see a Christ that is not only worth suffering for, but is worth entrusting your very soul to the Christ who alone can save you for your sins. Friends, for those of us who are in Christ, who are believers, this meal is open. So I wanna invite you to go ahead and peel back the top layer of that cellophane so we get to the bread element.